Well, welcome again. Welcome to everybody, especially visitors. We welcome you in the name of Jesus. We are, uh, again, in the Gospel of John today. We've been going through the last discourse of Jesus, his final preparation for his apostles before, they, before he's killed and before they go off uh, for the next 30 years to proclaim the Gospel. And he is telling them the most important things they need to know. So we're going to continue that conversation today. And I could ask you to please stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's word. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So let's all listen intently together to the reading of God's word. This is John chapter 14, starting at verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father commands me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. We pray that you would help us to to know it. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us and that you would teach us, Lord. Please give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. One of the downsides of having a pastor who's a junior World War II buff is that you get a lot of World War II analogies, so I apologize. <laughs> but this, uh, this, he talks about peace, and, and, and even though it's, we're 70 years past the point, we very, very much still live in a post-war world. A lot has happened since then, and for us, it's distant memory, and most of the men who fought in World War II have died, but that's, that war shaped much of what we know about the world, much about how the world is today, the borders, the nations, our relationships. Uh, we very much still live in a post-war world. And, and the reality is that the fall, that, that World War II, was, a, was a, we can't even imagine what that was like. I mean, they call those people the greatest generation for a reason, because they suffered through that they suffered through something on earth that we, we just can't even imagine what that must have been like for four years, five years, even longer in Europe and Japan and China to be suffering through a worldwide war. And so when peace finally did come, when Berlin fell, when Japan fell, it was an astonishingly beautiful new reality for the world. It was a peace uh, that was much different and an astonishingly beautiful thing from what just was. And so in some ways, that this does, the, the war like that, it serves as a picture for us, a, li, uh, a limited picture um, or a good picture analogy about mankind's war against God and that God will be bringing a peace and a liberation through Jesus. But there's also a disconnect. There are also, uh, it's a very limited analogy, right? Because a post-war world is a very ironic way to describe a world that is still very much at war. It was a peace, but it was a limited peace. 
after the peace, after the fall of Berlin, after the fall of Tokyo, there was still conflict, still struggle. There was still uh, war, Korea, Vietnam, uh, the Balkans, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, and, and many others that we don't even know about, Somalia, uh, Rwanda, because we're just, this just doesn't even come on our map as Americans. But war is still pervasive worldwide. And so when we think peace, we think from a worldly perspective, and it's in a limited way. But when Jesus says peace, he's talking about something totally different. He's talking about the Hebrew concept of shalom, his shalom peace, which is bigger and more beautiful and more everlasting than any peace from war that we might come up with will ever, ever, ever be. And so the big idea of this passage, the main thing that John, that Jesus wants us to know, the thesis of this part of John's gospel is this, that in light of Jesus' shalom, we are commanded to be courageous and rejoice in his obedience through the cross. That in light of Jesus' shalom, we are commanded to be courageous and to rejoice in his obedience through the cross. Let's break that down one little piece at a time. First, in light of Jesus' shalom, look at verse, the first part of verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. What is Jesus saying here? Peace, again, translated is the tran- our translation of the Hebrew word shalom, which almost undoubtedly he, Jesus used when he spoke this passage. And to us, to the Greeks, to the Greeks and to us as well, peace is a negative concept. It's the absence of war, the absence of conflict. But for the Hebrews, peace was a positive concept. It included, if you look at various dictionaries, it will give various words to try to translate shalom. They may give peace, harmony, wellness, wholeness of person, prosperity, welfare, tranquility. And the thing is, it's not that shalom could mean any one of those words, it's that it means all of them. (laughs) And so whenever you're reading a Bible translation or, or different translations and you see words translated differently, it's because the richness of the Hebrew word behind that can't be conveyed in just one word, peace. And so it's helpful to know the wholeness of what this concept means. And so I want to dig it out a little bit before we get to why it's important for us. This is what, this is what Cornelius Plantinga said. He's a, a Christian philosopher. This is his definition that I thought was beautiful. He says this. He says, Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, in fulfillment, and delight. This is what the Hebrew prophets called Shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than a mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means a universal flourishing, a wholeness and a delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyous wonder as its creator and savior opens the doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way that things ought to be. Isn't that beautiful? So that's first hint. Jesus is saying something much bigger than not, no conflict. It's not just peace, but he's talking about peace with God. And peace with God naturally means God's salvation come to us. 
in a covenant form. Even Isaiah in chapter 54, verse 10, says, The mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Jesus in this room, at the end of this supper, is proclaiming to them that God's covenant of peace had come to them. The apostles were so transformed by this understanding of peace that it became their language of blessing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean just no fighting. It means peace with God, God's covenantal blessing of salvation and peace be upon you. Uh, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's, It's not just calmness. It's the knowledge of your peace with God that colors every other thing of our lives because we know that we are at peace with God, that he is our father, and that we are protected. One commenter uh, said that this is synonymous with John, 28, John 10, 28, where Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of our hand. In other words, that was the promise. This pronouncement was the proclamation that it would be forgiven at the end of this very first communion service that we've been witnessing. At the end of it, Jesus proclaims that that promise is about to be fulfilled. Everything that's just happened in the Lord's Supper that we've been talking about is symbolic for what Jesus is about to do on the cross. And now he's saying, those promises that I made to you are being fulfilled. They're guaranteed. You will be given eternal life. You will not perish. And no one will ever, ever, ever snatch you out of my hand. That's what he's saying. And you know, that is the what he's saying, but even more important is the where and the when is he saying this. This is going to be like a wrecking ball. <laughs> and I was meditating on this passage this week. Jesus makes this declaration at the very end of the first communion service. What do we call that? What's the pronouncement that we do at the end of every communion service? It's a benediction. If you read the next, the very last word of the passage is, rise, let us go from here, because probably at a very early stage in the development of John's gospel, this was the end of this discourse, or at the very least... This is the end of this part of the discourse before they go somewhere else. And so this is the end of the first communion service, the first Lord's Supper ever, and Jesus stands up and gives this benediction and pronounces his peace upon the apostles, speaking. Now, here's why this is important for us. We all know instinctively that Jesus isn't just just speaking this word to the 12 apostles, right? He's talk- these words are for us, too. Nobody thinks that Jesus just gave his peace to those 12 guys and nobody else. We all instinctively know, man, that promise is for me too. But what we don't, I don't think, appreciate as much is that Jesus is still speaking those words to us. What do I mean? Well, we say at the beginning of every worship service, we say we don't believe this is an intellectual exercise. We believe that the word of God is living and active and powerful and that when we come together for worship, God is speaking to us through his word here and now, right? And so that means that when we call to worship, God is speaking to us through his word, calling us to worship. 
When the law is read, that's God's word coming to us. When the gospel is read to us, that is God's promises being made back to us again. And when the benediction comes, that is God pronouncing, that is Jesus proclaiming his peace and his blessing. When we do the ironic blessing, the standard benediction at the end of the service, may he give you peace. That is what Jesus said here, and it's Jesus saying it again live and direct as we worship which is why we do these things. Think of what we miss if we don't do a call to worship. What do we miss if we don't do a benediction? What do we miss if we don't do these things? We miss the live, active voice of our Lord proclaiming, assuring us of his pardon, of his blessing, of his good word over us as we go out into the world. And so, summary, first point. Jesus proclaims and he confers eternal life to his people through his word and he continues, continues to do it every Sunday when we meet together. Point two. Point one was, point one was, in the light of Jesus, shalom, two, we are commanded to be courageous. Look at verse, second half of verse 27. Let not your hearts be troubled Neither let them be afraid, for you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. When you learned last week that meant Jesus coming in the spirit to be with us in a real and substantial way, even more than he was with the disciples here and now. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does, you may believe. So last week, we talked about how the, what the commands of Jesus were in John's gospel. Jesus says, if you love me, you'd keep our commands. And we looked, we looked through the whole Bible, all of John's gospel for moral precepts, which were all summarized in the form of wash each other's feet, love one another as I have loved you, feed my sheep, things like that, which showed us that the intent of the law and the new covenant isn't just behavior modification, but it's the Holy Spirit's power working in us a love from the heart, from our person, changing us inside so that we become people who love, not people who can act like they love. (laughs) Big difference, right? But the big surprise last week was when we did that survey, the majority, vast majority of Jesus' commands were believe me, believe in the one he has sent, receive me, take up your bed and walk, uh, rise from the dead, uh, believe in, yeah, all commands like that, all commands about inviting us in to salvation, about his salvation having come to us. And so he continues that here where he says, uh, do not let your hearts be troubled. He, this is repeating what we talked about in the beginning of ver- or chapter 14 and all that. But now he adds something to it. And don't let them be afraid. He adds a new thing. And this is a different word for afraid than is usually in the Gospels. This is a word that really means don't be cowardly. Or in other words, to put it positively, be courageous. To believe and be courageous in your faith. Revelation 22 uses the same word to present uh, cowardice as an antithesis to faith. Uh, same word Paul uses to encourage Timothy when he says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, literally not of cowardice, but of power and love and self-control. And therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, 
nor of me his prisoner, but share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God. Now, if we think about what's going on here, what Jesus is saying to these men, what he knows is about to befall them, and what their life is going to be for the next 30 years, 20 years, 30 years, it's pretty clear that this is Jesus commanding that we have a courageous faith, that we have a, cor- a courage in our belief that, is, uh, that, that, that trusts in God even in the face of everything the world has to throw at us, which is a scary thing, which is what he's doing with these men and, and with us, right? Now, now, the reality is none of us live in Changsha, China, and most of us aren't going to prison for our faith, Lord willing. Most of us within our lifetime aren't going uh, to suffer in the way that the apostles suffered for sure, right? But I, th- I think for our generation, for us, our big struggle to have cor- a courageous of faith is because as Americans, we, we just equate status, cultural status, with safety and power. And when that becomes threatened in any way, we start freaking out and becoming afraid. Just think, look at what's happened as the church has lost cultural reputation or the church has lost cultural status, just how, how frantically some people have fought to regain that. Even when it's clear that the cost is our gospel witness. And so I think we're afraid of being seen by the world as being weird or cultish or regressive or hateful or whatever, all the, all the slurs that are thrown at us. And, and, uh, and it's because we're, I think we're afraid of losing our status and our reputation in the world. But here's a question. What if... What if safety and power didn't really come from status in the world at all? What if our safety and our power really had nothing to do, or our safety and our status had nothing to do with our power? As I was thinking about this this week, thinking about a courageous faith, thinking about really Pastor John before I found out that he'd been arrested today, I remembered an article that I had read, that was given to me a while ago, called The Privilege of Persecution. Uh, and I want to share with you some selected parts that talk about how saints in parts of the world where they, there's no status, no reputation. They are the weirdos. They are the cultists. They are the backwards, regressive people. They are the enemies of the state. They've got no clout. They've got no power. They've got no status. They've got no reputation. And this is what this article describes and what we can learn from that in this article called The Privilege of Persecution. The first thing it says is this, is that they revere the word as possessing the awe and nobility of God himself. The word of God is so cherished. There's a story in, in, uh, in Nick Ripkin's The Insanity of God where he's visited the churches in Russia and they tell him these stories that under the persecution, under the Soviet persecution, uh, there was a missionary who came, got in, and, and in these underground churches where their pastors were routinely being sent to the worst prisons you can imagine, and the families separated and pe- people being beaten and jailed in prison, they did a survey, they did a survey of the sixth grade Bible class. The sixth grade Bible class was able to recreate 
the first four books of the New Testament from memory. He went back 20 years later after the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the persecution had ended, after Christianity had no longer been what it once was, was basically culturally acceptable. Sixth grade class, Bible students, couldn't remember a single line, almost ashamedly. And so he makes the connection that freedom, quote-unquote, status, quote-unquote, had managed to do what 70 years of persecution could not. Second thing. They see worship as life itself. Here's a quote. It says, when they come together in worship, they're coming to an outpost of heaven. They're experiencing a foretaste of what it may be like to be standing before God's throne and they don't want to leave because when they do, they go back to hell itself. You know, uh, before we went to China, my cousins, niece's cousins, were at David Platt's church in Birmingham, Alabama. They used to do a thing called Secret Church, which was like a take on the Chinese underground church where they would, they would get everybody together in one room all day on a Saturday and teach the Book of Romans. Bang, all in one shot, thinking no one's, you know, only the hardcore people are going to dig this. And then what happened was it exploded. They, they couldn't, they would sell out and they couldn't keep, they couldn't do it enough to keep everybody that wanted to go to do it. Me and Nisa were always like, wow, that would be so cool to do that at ResPres. And then I went to China and we did, you know, we went to hotel rooms and uh, we snuck in and the believers snuck in two at a time and, and we had, you know, secret knocks and then they left and we, for, we did that for two and a half days and, uh, and then we came back and I realized that I had actually done a secret church in China. I was like, it was mind-blowing. I was like, did that really happen? Here's the thing. I mean, can you imagine that? All those people, some of them traveled 20 hours to come to those sessions and not complain. Um, They were just so, so grateful to be there, you know? And so I wonder sometimes, you know, when it's so culturally offensive here to go an hour and 31 minutes, (laughs) is that us or is that them? I know things are different here. I, I get that. There's different culture, different expectations. But can we learn something about their understanding of worship being so different than the culture around them that they, it's what they want more than anything? The third thing, this is shorter, they believe that prayer is the communion with God. Prayer is communion with God, and when they come together for corporate prayer, it's almost like sanctified desperation. Everybody prays all day. And the fourth one is this. The persecuted church experiences a hostile culture every day, and so it doesn't even worry about pleasing it or fitting in or being relevant. They understand we're the church, and we believe that God is going to save people through the power of his word and nothing else. In the same book, Insanity of God, when uh, Nick Ripkin, his alias, went to China, there was the curious phenomenon. He realized that there was an expectation of prison among the Chinese pastors. They understood that eventually, it wasn't when they would go to, it was what if they would go to jail, it was when. 
and everybody, there was almost, and, they were, and there was even the, the stranger thing to us is that they were grateful for it because of the formation that happened to their pastors and their leaders after they had come back out of prison. And so there was a, he was talking to one of the leaders and there was a younger man and he said, well, don't take him too seriously. He hasn't been to prison yet. In other words, once you did your first three-year term and came out, then you could be trusted to be a house church leader. And I, you know, I, I witnessed this when we were with Pastor John in Changsha, he, uh, he is illegal to do what he's doing. You cannot set up churches and Bible schools outside of the approved government church. So he would show up, in, and when he would show up in town, he would go directly to the police station and say, I'm here, I'm evangelizing, I'm setting up churches, whatever you're going to do, you come do it. And he'd walk out. <laughs> that man was Fearless. That man had a courage. That man had a faith that was fearless and courageous because he wasn't trusting in anything other than the power of God to protect him. And so he did his thing. He did his thing. He was forced through being in prison several times to trust God and God alone, and that's what he did. And you know, the, the craziest part of the story that, Nick Ripkin tells about the Chinese pastors is in, in another conversation, they were talking about, like he asked them a question, what do your neighbors think of you? What would your neighbors say about you? And before I, before I answer that, we talked a little bit of, a couple weeks ago about what people think of us in the church. What, you know, what do people, if we ask that question, what would our neighbors say about us? What would our neighbors in downtown San Diego or Hillcrest or central San Diego non-Christians, what would they say about us? They wouldn't say very positive things. You know what the Chinese said? They, he said, what would your neighbors say of you? And the lead guy, kind of smiling, kind of sheepish, kind of nonchalantly said, he goes, well, I guess they would probably say that we're the people who raised the dead. Now, I'm not making any statement on miracles. I don't know. I think that a Chinese church that is steeped in orthodoxy at the cutting edge of heavy persecution where many of the members say they've come to faith because of things like that. There's a lot of weight to that. Don't know for sure. Certainly more weight than coming out of other places that aren't so orthodox. Um, But to, to truly have your neighbors say that about you, that's their impression of you, no matter what the reality is, Man, is that astonishing? And so maybe it's possible. Here's the challenge for me and for all of us is that maybe it's possible that if we were more courageous, that we might have less money, but we'd have more power. So, point one. In the light of Jesus, shalom. We are commanded to be courageous. Point three. And rejoice in his obedience through the cross. Verse 30 and 31. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Everybody think for a minute. What's the scariest thing you've ever been through where you knew something bad was coming? 
and you had to wait for it. Maybe it was illness. Maybe it was the illness of a child. Maybe it was the illness of a parent that you knew was going to end in death. Could be a lot of things and how frightening that was. Now think about the movies that you've seen where everyone knew that evil was coming and they had nothing that they could do but wait for it to come. I'm thinking the Battle of Helm's Deep where the orc armies are, are so vast they go beyond the horizon and the rain is pouring down and no one knows what's going to happen. They just know that it's going to happen. All of those things, as terrifying as they are, the movie representations for sure, are really just reflections of the power of Satan, the power of evil, the power of hell in our world. And so try to imagine the reality. Try to imagine what it would be like if you knew that all of the powers of hell were coming for you. And out of that, we learn three astonishingly beautiful things about Jesus. The first one is that even though he knows that that's what's happening, what is he doing? He's consoling his disciples. He's teaching them. I mean, this teaches us something about the heart of God that no propositional truth statement ever could. He's so concerned with his disciples in the same way that he is concerned with us. That's the kind of love and focus and compassion that our Lord has for us. The second thing is that even though he knows what's coming for him, he is still willing to go through with it. John, as we've seen, gives, he he puts things in different light. Sometimes he tells the same story the, the other Gospels tell, but in a little bit different way. And so when he has Jesus saying, I do as the Father has commanded me, it's almost John's version of Jesus saying, not my will, but your will be done in the garden. He's at that point affirming that his love for the Father is going to carry through in his obedience to the Father. And that obedience is to follow through with the promise that he made, the Father and the Son, the promises that they'd made together, the covenant that they'd made together before the foundation of the world, that the Father would send the Son, the Son would live a perfect, righteous life to give righteousness to his people, and then he would suffer the full wrath of God upon him, all the powers of hell coming to him for our sake. And the third thing is that even though he knew what was coming for him, he knows one other thing. And he says this, he says, he, meaning Satan, has no claim on me. That's because Jesus is without sin. He knows that even so Satan is going to kill him and that he will die. He knows that he cannot be held by the power of death. We would say, in other words, he would, he would not be held by the power of death because of his sinless perfection. The law had nothing against him. 
It was sinless. And so he says, he, Satan, has nothing to charge me with. He has no claim on me. We would say, in our common vocabulary, we would say, he's got nothing on me. He's got nothing on me. And what's scary about that is that only Jesus can say that. We all know our hearts. And we know that deep down at the bottom of it all, the reason that we're afraid is because we know Satan has something on us. He's got a lot of things on us. But with this, that we, that we are condemned before the perfect justice of God. But the beautiful thing about this is that because Jesus went through with it, he is able to now transfer to us, to credit us. We are given credit for his exact same sinless righteousness. And what that means for all of us at the end of the day is that when we get scared by death, when we get scared by our own sin, when the devil comes to us after having tempted us, the first wave of the attack, and we fall, and then the devil comes to us afterwards and he says, hey, you suck. Christian wouldn't do that. How, how can you, I can't believe you did that to Jesus. I don't, I don't think you're saved, man. At the end of the day, what this means is that we can look Satan in the eye and we can say, you got nothing on me. Because of what Jesus has done, you've got nothing on me. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your gospel. It is astonishing to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice that Jesus is still speaking his shalom benediction to us every day that we meet in worship and over us through our lives, Lord. Every week he still pronounces his blessing of salvation upon us and his assurance of our pardon and our blessing. Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice that we have been commanded to have a courageous faith. And we pray um, that as Jesus has promised to be with us in power, we pray that you would help us to be fearless in proclaiming the gospel. And we pray that you would help us to rejoice that whenever we become afraid, we can rest assured of our coming glory with Jesus and the Father in heaven. And that not because of anything that we have done do we have this assurance, but because Jesus has paid the price for our peace with God and given us his shalom. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.